2: So, you know sometimes you'll set your alarm clock really early, like if you've got a flight or something like that, and then the next morning you'll wake up right on time. Does this mm-hmm. ever happen to you? Yeah, it does. I'll either do that or I'll wake up at like two and then three and then four <laughs> and then whenever I have to wake up. But more often than not, it's so weird because you'll wake up like a minute before your alarm goes off. And I was reading this study from the University of Lubeck, and they got some student volunteers to go to sleep and they told them before that, that they'd wake them up at either six in the
3: morning or nine in the morning. And then they lied and woke everybody up at 6 (laughs) o'clock. So I'm guessing a lot of the people who were told they'd wake up at 6 were like more awake at that time, right?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what happens. And the kids who were told they'd be getting up at 9 were completely groggy and just out of it. But what's interesting is that they were monitoring their bodies the entire time. And so for the sleepers who were told they'd be woken up early, their stress hormones kicked in at around 4.30 in the morning. You could actually see that their bodies were using stress to anticipate these early mornings and prepare them for the early day. And so today's episode is all about stress. What does it do to our body and how can we use it for good and what are the best ways to relieve it? So let's dig in. Hey there podcast listeners, welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hot Ticketer. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, raking this tiny zen garden. Oh, it's so sweet, but he's raking pretty (laughs) aggressively, actually. Really aggressively. (laughs) That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I think you need to go a little easier, Tristan. But Uh, he is getting pretty zen with it, and he's he's raking the heck out of this thing.
3: Yeah, I know. I mean, he does claim it helps him to relax, so I, I think we ought to support him. And for today's show especially, we should try to keep an open mind to different approaches to dealing with stress because there really is no one correct way to cope with it. For for example, I, I was reading about this study from a team out of uh, Australia, these neuroscientists from the University of Queensland, and apparently they figured out that when grass is cut, it actually inhibits our brain's release of stress-causing hormones. So it turns out there's a good reason why people love the scent of fresh-cut grass so much. It, it can actually help you calm down. Huh. That's pretty interesting. So that's
2: our first tip pretty early in the day. So if you're feeling stressed, just mow your lawn or <laughs> get an air freshener that smells like mowed lawn. And the truth is, there are a ton of other offbeat examples that, you know, are there to relieve our stress. But to start things off, why don't we talk about what stress
3: is and what kind of effects it can have on our bodies? All right. Well, since stress is something that's always been a part of life, I obviously don't have a great origin story for this one. But the closest thing might be the origin of the term. So I didn't realize this, but prior to 1946, the word stress didn't mean like a mental or emotional strain. Uh, Until that point, it was just used to refer to the pressure applied to an object, you know, not to a person's well-being. So what changed in 1946 specifically that that kind of gave it this new meaning? So there's this Austrian physician named Hans Selye, and that's the year he first coined the term stress while describing his latest experiments. So, of course, this comes back to a rat study, because we love rat studies on this show, but uh, Selye had been monitoring the the physical responses of rats that had been injected with different hormones, and also different, like, tissues. And he, he found that the rats' symptoms were identical regardless of what they'd been injected with. And what became apparent was that the rats were responding to the trauma of the experiments themselves, and, and he called this trauma stress. So I'm assuming the stress that
2: Cellier witnessed was involuntary, like, you know, a faster heart rate or an increase in blood pressure. Mm-hmm. I actually looked into this fight-or-flight response a little bit, and, you know, that's the feeling that gets triggered in your body when the brain recognizes some sort of outside threat. So basically, it starts when the hypothalamus sends signals to the pituitary glands and the adrenal glands. And what that does is it triggers the production of adrenaline and these other stress hormones like cortisol and epinephrine. And then a few things happen when all these chemicals are swirling around in our bloodstream. So for starters, our reflexes and senses are heightened so we can better deal with that perceived threat. The cortisol also pushes glucose out of our tissues and into our blood and that gives our bodies this extra boost of energy that you might experience if you're really, really
3: stressed. Yeah, so I, I'm always amazed by that sort of thing. Like, like we think of stress as such a negative, and yet it's also this reaction that's supposed to help us deal with these life-threatening situations. Like, if our ancestors had to, like, avoid running from a lion or something, that's when stress kicks in, and it's helpful. But obviously, these sharpened senses don't always help us deal with the more benign things, like trying to make a deadline or trying to give a public speech. and. You know, for for someone like me, who is really used to avoiding public speaking, that sort of stress can be debilitating. Like, doesn't it feel like overkill for the body to still be sending out all these signals? Yeah, it does. And the response to stress can be a problem when all that extra
2: focus and energy doesn't really have a natural outlet. Part of that's because the stress hormones actually begin to build up. And so that not only keeps us on edge, but it also provokes all kinds of unnecessary responses in our bodies. For example, you know how stress can make some people feel nauseous or sick to their stomach? Mm -hmm. Well, that's because stress hormones push the blood away from the gastrointestinal system and actually redirect it to the brain. And that makes sense because it helps the brain better respond to threats, but there are side effects. And, And that's when this redirection agitates the microbes living in our gut. And that, of course, makes you feel sick at your stomach.
3: So I I definitely feel that loss of appetite from anxiety. But what's weirder to me is that even though stress can sap your desire to eat, it can also make you gain weight at the same time. And I didn't realize this before, but as stress hormones like cortisol circulate through the body, they relay messages to our fat stores telling them to generate as much energy as possible. And this call to action triggers a process called lipolysis, which is basically when fatty acids called lipids are broken down and circulated through the body as a source of energy. All right, so if the fat is being broken down, it seems like that would cause us to lose weight rather than gain it. So how how does this work? Yeah, I mean, it should, except that these lipids also signal the brain to release more stress hormones, which basically tells the body to conserve its fat supply. So it's kind of this negative feedback loop. Like, as one professor of uh, neuroscience explained it, he said, cortisol causes lipolysis to release energy but stimulates the growth of fat cells, replenishing it, which makes it a double-edged sword. And basically, these mixed messages are also a big reason why stress can lead to obesity as as well as certain kinds of diabetes. Okay.
2: I mean, it makes sense. I actually never heard that before. And when you were talking about weight gain, I just assume you were talking about like stress eating or or other responses like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting to me, too. I I find it bizarre because, you know, I I can't eat, but like other people tend to chow down when they're stressed. And that's really because stress responses are highly individualized to our genetic differences. So, you know, people can have wildly different responses to the exact same stressor.
2: Yeah, and it is probably worth mentioning that while we know stress can make us feel sick, we aren't 100% sure of the physiological reasons behind that. But scientists have made some headway on that over the past decade or so. For instance, there was a study out of UCLA. This was back in 2012. And it pointed toward the immune system as a possible answer to this. So the researchers had a group of 122 participants fill out questionnaires, and they were answering questions about their activities over the last week or so. And included in that was whether each social encounter they had was positive or negative. And they also had participants undertake a whole series of these very stressful lab tests. And before and after these tests, the volunteers had their saliva tested. And what they were looking for was, you know, indicators of inflammation called cytokines. And these are products of the immune system. So cytokines are supposed to travel to the site of the wound or, you know, something like that so they can help fight off infection. So the researchers were trying to see if the stress would lead to a rise in these cytokines, and amazingly, it did. After the participants engaged in negatively stressful activities, things like arguments, their levels of cytokines went way up, which is pretty wild when you think about it. It's like our immune system is responding to an emotional or maybe a mental wound in the same way that it would a physical one.
3: Oh, that's crazy. So uh I mean, are, are there any negative effects of this? Like, like have scientists figured that part out? Well, there definitely are. I mean, the reaction can lead
2: to some pretty major problems in the long term, including stuff like heart disease and even cancer. You know, because like we mentioned, these cytokines are looking for a wound to work on. And when they don't find one, they just keep circulating and inflame regions that really don't require their
3: attention. Huh. Uh, So is there any way to prevent these unneeded cytokines from circulating? I, I mean, besides trying to avoid any of these stressful situations we put ourselves in?
2: Well, I mean, that's pretty much the only solution. And this was actually the takeaway of the study. I've got a quote here from the paper's author, Shelley Taylor. She says, The message is that the flotsam and jetsam of life predict changes in your underlying biology in ways that cumulatively could have a bad effect on health. What this tells me is that people should be investing in socially supportive relationships. And they should not court relationships that lead to a great deal of conflict.
3: <laughs> so don't hang out with enemies all the time. Yes, don't <laughs> hang out with bad people. See, it's such
2: sound advice we're providing.
3: I also know from my own experience, I, I'm not always the best at evaluating my own stress levels. So it's actually something I looked into. And did you come across this uh, this scientist named Stephen Cole in your research? I don't think so. It doesn't ring a bell. So uh, Cole was basically bothered by our inability to measure our own stress. So he wondered, like, what if our brain's automatic stress assessment doesn't translate to a conscious awareness of
2: it? So are there actually subconscious signs that we're feeling stressed, like things we might not even
3: notice in ourselves? So that's exactly what Cole and his fellow researchers wanted to find out. And And to do it, they enlisted 143 volunteers and had them wear these audio recorders for two days. And during that time, the recorders would switch on automatically every couple of minutes. And they actually gathered over 20,000 audio clips. And from there, the researchers transcribed the recordings and started picking apart the specific language. And in particular, they paid attention to these things called function words, which are uh, pronouns and adjectives that, I guess, clarify meaning rather than providing it themselves. So you think about the opposite of that, which is meaning words, nouns, and verbs. Those are words a speaker might deliberately choose versus, like, these so-called function words, which are produced without thinking. And the idea is that maybe these function words could theoretically give you a glimpse of what's going on subconsciously. Hmm. So were the researchers able to link certain words to feelings of stress? Yeah, the the study found that a volunteer's use of function words was much more accurate prediction of gene expression than even like an individual self-report about his or her stress level. So, for example, participants who exhibited stressed-out gene expressions talked less overall, but when they did speak, they used more intensifying adverbs such as like really or very or incredibly, and they also used fewer third-person plural pronouns such as they or their. All right. All right. I'm, I'm writing all these down for later use. This is good. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a reason. Like, like according to the researchers, uh, we use they or they're less. And and that's because people tend to focus inwards. And, of course, there's still much more research to do on all of this. But if these initial findings hold up, it could actually be a new way for doctors or even, like, your phones or your watches or your Alexas to spot mm-hmm. if you're stressed out. And all that by just listening to the words you use. That is pretty incredible, and also a little bit weird to think
2: about, but uh, but yeah, very interesting. And it reminds me, there are actually a few other symptoms of stress that I wanted to talk about, and one of these is, is whether or not it can really make your hair
3: turn gray. Well, as someone whose hair has all turned gray since I've had kids, I'm very interested in who to blame for this, but uh, <laughs> before we dig in, let's take a quick break.
4: Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with
2: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about all the different ways stress can affect our bodies. And, Mango, I've got
3: bad news for you. There's one thing stress doesn't do, and that's turn your hair gray. So I'm definitely a little confused by this because I, I look at Obama and George Bush and how their hair turned color, like, pretty soon after they got into office. And for some reason, our current president's hair has stayed the exact same color. But are, are you saying stress makes no contribution to these, like, Bonnie rate streaks in my hair? You know, I've
2: always wanted to tell you how much you reminded me of Bonnie Raitt, so I'm glad (laughs) you finally brought it up. But, you know, despite what many people think, there's actually no clear scientific link between stress and going gray. And it turns out it's actually a person's genes more than anything else that determine when their hair
3: turns gray. So why is that when, like, my kids started talking a lot and bossing me around, that's when my hair went gray? I think it's just getting older, man. I
2: mean, <laughs> it's the same thing for the presidents that you talk about or, or, or most of our presidents. And, you know, while we don't know the exact genetic reason why most people go gray as they age, we do know that it ultimately comes down to these melanocytes, which are these pigment cells that give hair its color. So when you're younger, the cells work to fight off damaging compounds like hydrogen peroxide. And these would otherwise cause oxidation if they were allowed to build up on the scalp. But as we get older, our genes have a harder and harder time keeping that oxidation at bay. And so according to one theory, as the hydrogen peroxide accumulates over time, our melanocytes start to die off. So, you know, once our follicles begin to run low on their only source of pigment, they start producing colorless or or gray hair
3: instead. So, I mean, I'm going to accept that answer, but, but I also feel like, you know, these old wives tales have been going on for long enough that there has to be some validity, right? Like, is there any truth to any of it? Well, there actually is one thing that kind of redeems their
2: tail, and and that's because cellular strain that's brought on by oxidation, it is actually known as oxidative stress. And that's different from the kind of emotional stress that we've been talking about, though it's still somewhat connected. So this comes from Mary Seilberg of the Global Dermatology Institute, and as she says, a very strong chronic stress is known to increase oxidative stress. And there are studies that document correlations between extreme emotional stress and increased cellular Uh oxidative stress. I I got it. No, you didn't let me finish (laughs) here, Mango. So this is not to say that we gray every time that we fight with our children or spouses. That was what she said at
3: the end of it. Well, while while family and work stress might not turn our hair gray, uh, there is one thing that does lead to hair loss. Because oddly enough, losing your hair is a coping mechanism when we're going through exceptionally hard times. So I do have my kids to blame. This is good to know. (laughs) Well, first, it it helps to know the life cycle of our hair includes three phases, so I'm gonna talk through that. The last of which is this resting period called the telogen phase. And hairs in this stage are no longer connected to a blood supply, which means they're no longer growing either. Now, usually about 8% of our hair is in this dormant stage at any given time, and this is all completely natural, right? Like, hairs in this telogen phase stay put for around three months or so, And then they kind of just fall out gradually as we go about our lives. All right. So then how does stress figure into this? Well, when people go through something that's emotionally draining like illness or like the loss of a loved one or even something positive but still taxing, something like childbirth, our, our bodies will sometimes prompt much of our hair to enter this telogen phase prematurely. And it's actually the body's way of conserving energy to be used elsewhere during like a period of extended stress. All right. So let me get this straight. Not only do you
2: have to get through a tough time, but when you finally get to the end of it a few months later, all your hair falls out. I mean, it it (laughs) kind of feels like a raw deal to me. Yeah, it is. (laughs) But, you know, we've been concentrating on the negative here, which is a little uncharacteristic for us. But the truth is, not all of stress's effects on the body are bad ones. They're actually upsides to emotional or mental pressure. And, you know, for one thing, experiencing stress better prepares us to handle it in the future. And the reason for that really comes down to mental conditioning. You know, whenever we encounter a stressful situation, our prefrontal cortex takes notice of this. And remember, this is the part of the brain that handles executive functions that help us cope with different threats. So the next time we're faced with a mild stressor that we've handled before, the prefrontal cortex is able to overrule those warnings. And and that makes the stress much easier to bear than it was the last time.
3: I'm actually glad you're pointing out how stress can make us more resilient because one of the things I found out this week is that having a well-rounded view of stress can actually help you live longer. So why is that? This is according to a study from 1998 when uh, researchers asked about 30,000 adults in the U.S. about their opinions on stress. And the participants were asked to report how much stress they'd experienced in the past year and whether or not they believed that stress was negatively impacting their health. Then eight years later, the researchers determined that high levels of stress had increased the risk of dying by 43 percent, but only in the people who had said stress was making them less healthy. Hmm. So what about the people who reported high stress levels but didn't think it was hurting them? I mean, that's the craziest part. Not only were those people less likely to die prematurely, they actually had the lowest risk of death of all the participants, including those who'd reported low stress levels. So it really seems like stress itself isn't the problem. It's kind of how we think about it or deal with it that makes or breaks us. Well, that sounds right. And, of course, there's a little
2: caveat there. I mean, simply being exposed to a stressful situation doesn't equip us to handle them better next time. I mean, if you get really stressed before a presentation and then you crack under pressure... It's not like you're going to feel stress free the next time you have to give a presentation. And on the other hand, like if you overcome those anxious feelings and give a solid performance despite all that stress. Then,
3: of course, the next time you'll feel a whole lot less stress going up again. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's definitely no quick fix for stress, but like we've been saying, maybe that's not such a bad thing. I mean, I think about the people from the study who reported high stress levels but didn't actually consider it a problem. And I'd wager what they were experiencing is something called eustress or healthy stress. And this was another term coined by that uh, scientist we talked about earlier, Hans Selye. And it refers to the range of stress where people actually feel motivated or more productive. Which is
2: fascinating to think about, and it makes sense, but but what separates this good stress from the bad stress?
3: Again, it, it really comes down to perception. So, like, if you, if you think about, like, an employee who's been given a reasonable amount of work and a realistic deadline, then it's likely that person will feel engaged but not overwhelmed. You know, like, the goal seems achievable, so they know that any stress they feel is temporary or, you know, surmountable. And that usually results in motivation and focus rather than... I guess what would be discouraging feelings, you know, when, when you feel like it's just too much to cope with. Well, that does make sense. And
2: obviously not all stress is going to be healthy stress. I mean, sooner mm-hmm. or later, we have to deal with the, the bad kind. And while you mentioned how working through distress can make you more resilient in the long
3: run, sometimes you just want relief from it, you know? Absolutely. So let's check out a few offbeat ways to cope with stress. But before we do, let's take another quick break.
4: Inspired by guaranteed, straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber. Live like a Gideon man. Available wherever you get your podcast Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com/hypergig for details. This is it.
0: Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
2: L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone.
3: Okay, well, so why don't you go first? What's your favorite time-tested way to de-stress? All right, so this isn't anything I've tried before, but I came across this study on
2: acupuncture, and I've always been curious about acupuncture. And this study was from a few years back, and it, it really shed some light on why the practice might be so effective at relieving certain people's stress. Now, acupuncture is, of course, a big part of traditional Chinese medicine, and it actually dates back several thousand years. But for all that time, the treatment has largely been seen as really more of a placebo in the eyes of Western medicine. And it seemed to work as a form of pain
3: management, but you know, researchers weren't sure exactly why. So I, I've actually done a course of acupuncture for this arm injury I had, and I was really skeptical going in, and, and then I found it really helpful. But I was also curious whether it was just like a placebo thing. But you're kind of saying that someone's cracked the case on why it might work? Uh, well,
2: maybe. I mean, there was a team at Georgetown that took on this challenge back in 2015, And they found that acupuncture might actually work by suppressing some of those stress hormones that we talked about earlier. So in humans, our central stress response is called the HPA, and this stands for the hypothalamus-pituitary-adrenal axis. And believe it or not, this complex feedback system is linked to an acupuncture point on our shins of all places. Now, luckily, there appears to be a similar point on the paws of what else but rats, Rats. and so researchers (laughs) were able to use them for a study instead, and so... First, they stressed out the rats by exposing them to cold conditions, and then they tested how these cold rats responded to stimulation on that specific paw point. And so it turns out the acupuncture greatly reduced the activity in the rat's HPA axis, and it was blocking the production of stress hormones. And this is much like the anti-anxiety medications might do. So, you know, while there's still more research to be done, the evidence does suggest that acupuncture holds more water than many
3: people give it credit for. Well, for those of you out there who have no interest in like poking yourself or prodding yourself before a big speech or game or whatever, you can actually make do with stress toys. And this is anything from fidget widgets to paper clips to stress balls to silly putty, even that little Zen garden that Tristan's been raking the heck out of for half an hour. And he's he's only getting more aggressive with it. He- <laughs> I know. <laughs> but the strange thing is, it really works. So uh, there's this pair of researchers from Polytechnic Institute at uh, NYU, and they've been doing a study on these kinds of objects, and they claim that stress toys function as, quote, playful secondary interactions that are able to engage bodily movement, effective states, and cognition to support primary serious tasks. I mean, it feels like a highfalutin way to talk about paperclips,
2: but but I get it. <laughs> and, and, and I'm curious, I mean, have there been any studies just on stress balls? Because It feels like there was a time when these things were the most popular thing in the world. Like, you
3: remember this, and everybody was giving away these stress balls. I know. I I feel like I came back with, like, three stress balls a week just from walking around (laughs) campus or whatever. But uh, there's actually no definitive research on it. I did find one study that showed that brief distractions actually help people concentrate. So you think about, like, checking your email or watching a short YouTube clip or, you know, all that type of thing can serve as a mini vacation for your brain. And it kind of resets your attention span, which makes sense and lets you get back to work. And when you do, your focus is more readily there. But this is where the team from NYU comes in because, according to them, fidget widgets have an advantage over these other kinds of diversions. And that's because stress toys are typically used just for the enjoyment of the experience itself. So with something like a smartphone game like You might find relief from work, but you're also setting a new kind of goal as you're playing it. Like, you got to beat this level or you've got to get this high score. And on the other hand, like, when you're squeezing a stress ball, all you're doing is squeezing a stress ball. Right, right. right. (laughs) I mean, it's something that's done just as a simple form of mindless fun. And it actually stands a better chance of relieving your stress than any of the other stuff we mentioned. But there's actually this other great study I have to bring up because it involves fake smiles. Oh, fake smile. Sorry. Well, tell me about it. So you remember that episode we did on exercise a while back where uh, there was this one study about how when you smile when you're running, it can improve your endurance? Yeah, I remember that one. But it's it, it was only if the smile was like truly genuine, though, right? Yeah. So apparently fake smiles are actually good for something else. So this is an experiment I'd actually paid to witness. but. Researchers used chopsticks to manipulate participants' faces into one of three expressions. <laughs> like, they used the chopsticks to press their faces into, like, a neutral expression and a standard smile. And then this so-called genuine smile where it also pressed the muscles around their eyes. And once their expressions were set, the volunteers were asked to complete a series of stressful multitasking activities All while continue to hold the chopsticks in place.
2: (laughs) See, this is where I'm jealous of scientists, because even if you didn't actually believe there was something you could find for this, you could just say, like, we're trying to study for this for science, so I'm going to stick some chopsticks in your face and move (laughs) your face around, but I'm with you. I want to see this experiment, too, but... I'm curious here, like, how was their stress level monitored, or or was this really just some elaborate hoax, like I said, to get, you know, to get (laughs) to be able to press these chopsticks into people's faces?
3: No, it was a real thing. And researchers actually tracked the volunteers' heart rates through the experiment, and they also had each person give a self-report of how stressed they felt at different times. And In the end, the people who maintained the neutral expressions had the highest heart rates of all the participants. And granted, the people with the genuine smiles were the most relaxed and uh, gave the most positive reports. But even the people who were forced with standard smiles, they responded more positively than those who didn't smile at all. I mean, that is pretty amazing.
2: So I'm going to try that the next time I'm stuck in traffic. I'm going to keep some chopsticks (laughs) in my glove compartment. And then when I get stressed, I'm just going to pull them out and just shove them into my cheeks. Well, I I don't know if that'll make you
3: feel better, but it's definitely going to make me feel better.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I do want to talk about one other aspect of stress, and that's the fact that it's on the rise in our country. Now, according to a 2017 national survey, this was conducted by the American Psychological Association The U.S. is currently undergoing a statistically significant increase in anxiety, and this is the first time since the annual survey launched back in 2006, so we're talking over a decade now. Now, that may sound vague enough to not worry about it too deeply, but when you couple that with research from Harvard and Stanford business schools, which report that health problems stemming from job stress end up killing about 120,000 people each year, you know, it becomes clear pretty quickly that we can't afford for stress levels to get much higher. I mean it's literally killing us.
3: Yeah, it's hard not to worry when you hear stats like that, which is another problem in itself, because even stressing about stress is bad for you. I read about the study back in 1991, where over 7,000 civil servants in London were asked to rank how much they thought their stress level affected their overall health. And then nearly two decades later, the researchers took those answers and compared them alongside a list of participants who wound up having fatal or non-fatal heart attacks in the years since the survey. And this is where things get weird So The Atlantic reported on this a few years later, and this is how they summarized the findings. 8% of the participants had reported that stress affected their health either a lot or extremely. And by the end of the study, those same people were over twice as likely to have suffered a heart attack as those who believed it didn't impact their health at all. This was independent of how much stress they actually experienced. So while psychological, biological, and behavioral factors are all probably in play here, the takeaway is simply that if you feel like stress is killing you, there's a good chance it is. I mean, thankfully, there are all kinds of effective
2: ways to manage stress, and it's much harder for some than others, but people turn to things like exercise and controlled breathing as well as chronic stress treatments like therapy and, you know, even certain medications.
3: Yeah, and I also want to circle back to something we talked about near the top of the show, which is that idea of investing in socially supportive relationships. There's actually a good deal of evidence to suggest that a lot of the stress we feel today is made worse by some of the more isolating aspects of modern culture. So, you know, if this world has you feeling anxious, I'd recommend indulging in some good old-fashioned camaraderie because, you know, while other people are often a major cause of stress in our lives, in some cases they can also be a way to relieve it. Yeah, that's definitely true. And if
2: all else fails... Get yourself a Zen garden. (laughs) All right, why don't we start the fact
3: off? So here's one to kick this off. You don't want to separate a cow from their best friend cow. According to research from Northampton University, when cows are penned in with their best cow friends, a pal they've grown up around, their heart rates and stress levels go down. But when they're put in a pen for 30 minutes with a cow stranger, they get more stressed out. Which, you know, sounds silly, but the body system is relevant to farmers because that stress can actually decrease a cow's milk production. Hmm. All right. So you know how people who
2: are stressed sometimes want to sleep away that stress? Like, even the stress of a big argument can make you sleepy sometimes. Well, there's a reason for this. Researchers at the University of Pennsylvania stressed out a bunch of roundworms, and then they found that there's a gene that helps repair damaged DNA by making them sleepy, and that helps sedate them when they were stressed. and. According to The Atlantic, the idea is that some types of stress-induced sleep occur because the body may be
3: trying to patch up its genes. Huh, that's fascinating. So for no particular reason, I I, uh, looked up celebrities and how they relieve stress. So Keanu Reeves has a very Buddhist approach. He says too much money and worrying about your bank account can cause stress. So his advice is to give lots of your money away and live simply, mostly out of a suitcase in hotels. If selling everything and living in a hotel doesn't calm you down, you can also follow Kendall Jenner's approach. She says, my way to de-stress is to either listen to music or talk to my sister, Kourtney Kardashian, which is good <laughs> advice. I, I, I'm going to talk to Kourtney the next time I'm stressed, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're turning to uh, Kendall and Keanu for uh,
2: <laughs> our stress relief ideas. All right, well, Here's something I didn't realize. Financial stress can hurt you physically. This comes from Eileen Chow, a public policy professor at UVA. She and her team analyzed over 30,000 households, and they found that those with higher levels of unemployment were more likely to purchase over-the-counter painkillers. So they looked into it a little bit more and set up these experiments where they discovered that simply thinking about financial insecurity was enough to increase your pain. I'm going to quote Scientific American here. It says, People reported feeling almost double the amount of physical pain in their body after recalling a financially unstable time in their life as compared with those who thought about a secure period. They also conducted an ice bucket challenge where they primed kids to feel anxious about their future employment prospects and saw that their pain tolerance was less than those who weren't stressed about
3: their financial futures. I mean, that's crazy. And it does make you wonder if the opioid epidemic in some part is related to like financial stress and economic uncertainty. It's really interesting. So here's one I really like, and it comes from Discover. So the scientist Barry Marshall realized that ulcers weren't caused by stress, which is what everyone thought forever. He believed they were caused by this bacteria H. pylori, but he couldn't convince any mainstream gastroenterologists, and he couldn't prove his point with lab mice either, but because he was prohibited from experimenting on humans, he did the only thing he ethically could, He used himself. So he pulled H. pylori from the gut of a sick patient, put it in a broth, and drank it. And uh, (laughs) before long, he developed signs of an ulcer. And the good news is that because it's bacterial, it can actually be treated with antibiotics instead of the de-stressing things that uh, doctors had been recommending. And even better for him, at least, Marshall won a Nobel Prize for the efforts. Wow. All right, well, here's a quick one. When forests are overcrowded,
2: Squirrels will boost their stress hormone during a pregnancy, and that leads to faster-growing
3: squirrel pups, which, of course, increases their chance of survival. That's fascinating. So here's one I just learned. The day that South Korean kids take their college entrance exam is particularly stressful. It's an eight-hour exam, and there are all sorts of traditions around it. Like, underclassmen will actually form these uh, cheering squads to greet the test-takers at the exam locations, and uh, the stock market opens an hour later, as do most businesses. Most parents can be found in temples or churches just praying away the day. But the biggest indication of how much stress is going on is that South Korea actually cancels all flights on that day, so the skies are completely quiet while the kids are concentrating.
2: I have to say, of all the facts that
3: we've shared today, that one actually makes me the most stressed (laughs) just thinking about it.
2: But I will say, I'm looking over at Tristan, I'm seeing him raking his Zen garden, and it's making me calm down a little bit. So, Mango... I don't know about you, but I feel like for the first time, we should actually give Tristan the Fact Off trophy today. It is
3: a big day for Tristan. So listeners,
2: <laughs> if we have forgotten any great facts about stress, feel free to pass those to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us part genius at howstuffworks.com, or you can call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. But thanks
3: so much for listening. Congratulations, Tristan.
2: Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand.
3: Tristan McNeil does the editing thing.
2: Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing.
3: (laughs) Jerry Rowland does the exec-producer thing.
1: XCOM.com slash compatibility.